0: Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that your Son came and was incarnate from among us and lived as one of us. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, which this morning we ask for you to pour into this place. Let it stir in our hearts. Let it open our eyes and our ears and our hearts uh, for your word this morning and what you have, Lord, in your word. Prepare us by the power of your spirit, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This week we are back in the book of Philippians. Would you pull out your reading so you have it handy? You'll find it on page six in your bulletins. I'm not going to preach through it verse by verse, but if you have that out, it's a familiar reading, I'm sure, to many of you. Uh, But as, as I work our way through it, I want you to kind of see what we're looking at. I believe I said this two weeks ago, that it's Hard to fully understand what the Apostle Paul wants you to know apart from thinking about the circumstances in which he wrote this epistle, this letter and so it's important to remember that he is in jail awaiting trial in the first chapter I preached about the first chapter a few weeks ago and and uh, he I talked about how he was musing about uh, potentially uh, being vindicated in, in trial. And that would mean, of course, that he would be able to continue his ministry. And he's like, that's good, because I get to encourage you and continue to minister and disciple you. But, he, but he's writing to the Philippians, and he says, if, in fact, I am executed, that's good, too, because I get to go with be with Jesus. He doesn't fear death. He's comforted knowing that the Lord is in control. And, and he is a mature Christian who is calling the people who read this letter, to maturity. He's saying, imitate me, join me in in Christ-likeness. He knows who he is and whose he is. Therefore, he is at peace with whatever may come, including death. We need to keep this in mind today as we read this passage from the fourth chapter of this letter There's a man at peace because he knows that he has been obedient to God's call. And the execution does not mean defeat, but it means that he gets to be with the Lord. To depart and to be with Christ is better, are his exact words. We need to keep this in mind as we hear the exhortation to us in the first verse of today's reading, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Did you get that? Did you you notice that? He wants you to catch it because he repeats himself, right? Once more for those in the back. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. These would be hard words for you and me if they were coming from a man who was not in chains. But they are. So he has credibility, right? When he says, rejoice in the Lord always. He's not taking a break from his life of leisure to dash off a quick letter about how through persistence and through faithfulness that we too can be healthy and rich and live in a mansion and have many, many servants. In fact, what he's doing is he's probably taking a break from from praising God for God's faithfulness to eat this tiny, horrible prison meal. He's picking the maggots out of the bread. He's probably itching his bed bug bites. I'm sorry if that's graphic. Um, he's taking a break from that to encourage you and me, free people in the most prosperous society the world's ever seen. And he's asking us from prison, he's saying, rejoice always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Paul rejoiced not because of prosperity, but in spite of his suffering. We today, we rejoice not because of prosperity. We rejoice because of what the Lord has done. Because it's easy to not feel prosperous during these trying times, during this year of 2020, which has been incredibly difficult, which is, featured all sorts of isolation and dislocations, and yet we rejoice. If we look around and actually take stock of of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, there's plenty uh, to be unhappy about. And Paul is not saying rejoice because of the bad things that you have endured. Because as we look around, there may not be all that much to rejoice about. That is because we as Christians rejoice not because of our circumstances, Our rejoicing in fact has almost nothing to do with our circumstances. Take it from Paul, a prisoner awaiting trial and possible execution. We rejoice because our joy is found not in money or health or fame. Our joy is found in Jesus. And if we understand that, we can understand what Paul is getting at here. Let's move on because I hope this idea becomes a little bit more clear as we walk through this passage. This idea that our joy, our thankfulness, our gratitude, our rejoicing has more to do with what God, with who God is and what he has done than in any particular circumstance. Even as we give thanks for all the things that he has given us, the roof over our heads, the food that we eat. We're going to explore that a little bit more. So it would be easy at first glance to look at this first paragraph in this reading and see these sentences as these disjointed, unrelated thoughts. But in fact, they are, they, they are tied together pretty tightly. In verse 5, he says, Let our reasonableness be made known to everyone. And this is where translations get a little bit... Uh, a little bit tricky, but it's hard to convey what he's trying to convey here. Uh, reasonableness is an acceptable translation, but what Paul is trying to convey is tough with any particular word. And in fact, as we look at other versions side by side, as we look at the NIV and the NRSV, they, they use the word gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to other, every, other one, to everyone. I think the NASB says, be considerate in all you do. So do we see the range of kind of gentleness, reasonableness, uh, consideration, um, ad- considerateness, King James says, let your moderation be made known to everyone. So that's kind of a wide range of, of what translators are getting from you know, this word that Paul used. And, and Paul uses this word elsewhere and ties it to Jesus. He says that, that Jesus' gentleness towards us So so it conveys this overall care um, that that Jesus shows us. It's more than just being gentle. It's it's reasonable, gentle, uh, considerate uh, in the way that Christ is to us. As we rejoice in the Lord, in spite of circumstances, we convey to the world God's gentleness. That we can rejoice in spite of difficult circumstances. And in that way, we can convey the heart of God, which, which gives us joy in Christ apart from circumstances. And in that way, our reasonableness, our considerateness, that, that we are not, have you ever had a situation where um, you're suffering and you have to sit through and listen to someone who's self-absorbed tell you about their suffering because they're completely blind to what you're going through? Or maybe you've gone through the same thing and they're complaining to you about that exact thing and they're just like hoping to get sympathy from you and you're like, uh, hello, like I, I get it, Like I was there, but you're not getting it. When we comfort other people who are suffering and we bring joy to that, the reasonableness of, of the Christian life where we find joy in Christ, we, we don't find joy just in small things, we find joy in Christ. It's not that we say, "Oh, we can we can be happy with a little bit." It's that we can be happy because of Christ. The way that we care for others in the midst of our trials is a message to the world about the God that we worship. Do you remember the story about Paul and the Philippian jailer in Acts 16? This is one of my favorite stories in all all the Bible. Paul and Silas had arrived in the city of Philippi, and they they do their usual thing where they go to the synagogue. No synagogue there. So they go and find a woman named Lydia out um, on the banks of a river, uh, and they preach the gospel. She believes it. She takes them home. But as they're going throughout the city of Philippi, they encounter this this servant girl who is possessed by a demon. And as she kind of follows Paul around shouting things about him, he gets kind of irritated and and casts the demon out of her, which seems to be liberation for this slave girl, but her masters made money off of her fortune-telling talent which the demon gave her. And so they were beaten with rods and thrown in jail. It's one of the most remarkable stories in all of of the Bible. And the, the jailer is told to, like these are really important prisoners, there's something about, they, they can, he conveyed to the jailer that like, these are really important people and it says they were thrown in the innermost part of the jail and they were locked, their, their legs were locked in stocks. And then the next thing we see, this is, it says, around midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God. They were praying and singing hymns to God while bleeding from being beaten by rods, while concussed, while certainly suffering. And that's not even the craziest part of the story. What happens next? Do you remember? There's an earthquake that opens all the jail doors and opens all the stocks. And the jailer goes in, or all he sees is that that the doors are open. And it says he raises his knife to kill himself because if you remember how the Romans treat people who, are, who fail at their job, it's, it's not good. And has, the assumption was that these people who, who were essentially freed, the jail doors are open, that they were gonna walk out. But something happened, I'm sure, uh, in Paul and Silas's interaction with the rest of these people in prison because the rest of the people don't bolt. And in fact, Paul out, calls out to the jailer and he says, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all still here. The jailer is so amazed at their faithfulness that he, that, that he invites Paul and Silas to his house and, and it says that they believed the gospel. And the whole family was baptized that night. Paul's gentleness and care for the life of the jailer, do you think that this had anything to do with the conversion of this jailer and his family? You better believe it. You had better believe it. Paul's reasonableness in the face of danger. I guarantee you that that gentleness that he conveyed to the jailer and all the people in the jail, we don't hear about them, but that was was something that, that was a message to them of the God that they worship. My sincere hope is that our trials do not lead to beating and imprisonment, but that doesn't mean that our gentleness for others, even at our worst time, even at our hardest time, isn't a powerful testimony about the God that we worship. That even at our lowest points, we have loving care for those around us. We're a few minutes in here. I should probably move past the second verse of the reading. Again, these seem to be disjointed. I think each of these small statements actually fit together. Then he says, The Lord is at hand. I'm not going to stop there because this ties into verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There are two different ways of taking this statement the Lord is at hand. One, of course, is the expectation that Jesus will return any moment. This is something that they believed back then and this is something we believe today. Jesus, Jesus promised to return. It's, he's coming, so fear not. He's coming to bring justice. He's coming to make all things right. So fear not. As Jesus was a, But I think actually, in context, it's better to understand this a different way. When he says the Lord is at hand, I think in context, the way we ought to understand it is that the Lord is here. The Lord isn't absent, the Lord is present. What was the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples as he was ascending? He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. I didn't leave you alone. I mean, yes, yeah, I I told you I have to go away because then I will send you the Holy Spirit. But there was this promise that Christ would be with them always through the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's with us always, therefore don't be anxious. He is not unaware of your circumstances. Whatever those may be, even your circumstances today, he is not unaware of them. The Lord is at hand, do not be anxious. He not only knows your circumstances, he cares. Do you remember Jesus teaching on anxiety? Back in Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, there's tremendous wisdom here. The tremendous wisdom, apart from his presence, is that, he says, does worry or anxiety, has it ever extended your life a single day? Like it's the most useless emotion. But much of his teaching on anxiety, and and of course, I want to say here, I don't mean clinical anxiety. I would never discourage you from seeking uh, medical help for, for a, what is a brain chemistry issue. But our worries are nagging anxieties, those things which which uh, we worry about. That's what he's talking about. Jesus tells us not to worry. Why? Beyond the fact that it's useless, we don't worry because God cares. And he points out the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and how God feeds the birds and God clothes the flowers. And he says, how much more does he care about you? If he takes care of all of creation, of course he's going to take care of you. Who he loves far more than a flower or a bird. We are able to be free from anxiety dominating our lives because the Lord is at hand, because God is is with us. And when these worries creep to the forefront, we bring them to God in prayer. Or as Paul says, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Recently, I believe, sometime this year, I've mentioned my appreciation of the preaching of, of Timothy Keller, pastor of a uh, retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Years ago now, I remember listening to a sermon he preached where he shared this insight that he had on prayer that changed his life. And what, what he, uh, he'd been struggling for years with prayer, kind of feeling guilt at the times he didn't pray. And what he decided to do is to just pray daily for a month. And he wanted to pray daily in the A-C-T-S form of prayer, which you may have heard of. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. This is sort of modeled on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, When uh, when his disciples said, teach us how to pray, Jesus said, pray like this. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We start our prayers with adoration of who God is. And then we confess our sins. And then Thanksgiving, and then we we give thanks for all the things that we have in this life that the Lord has done, A, C, T, and then finally, S, the final thing we do is supplication. That's where we ask God for the things that are kind of on our mind that usually drive us to prayer in the first place. And the amazing insight he had, like a week in to this experiment of praying every day in this form, was by the time he got to his prayer list, which was seemed incredibly lengthy. By the time he got to the S part, the supplication, the part of his prayer where he, after he was adoring God and, and meditating on who God was and praising him and confessing his sins and giving thanks for all the things in his life, what he found was the things that had been bothering him, those things that he wanted to bring to the Lord, they seemed very small. He became so focused on who God was, the character of God, and how, that, how God had worked in his life, that he kind of forgot all of his worries. He forgot all of his anxieties. Isn't that something? The peace of God which is promised to us is related to this. Our freedom from worries is tied directly to this. At the end of our services, our services close, right before uh, we have our dismissal, we have what's called the blessing, where I bless you, but the beginning of that blessing is the peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the first half. And then the, the other part is the actual blessing itself. But that comes from this verse. So what is this peace of God that passes all understanding? This is not the sort of peace that the world offers. This isn't Zen. This isn't finding nirvana. This isn't mellow. This isn't feng shui. The peace that that Paul is offering here isn't even a feeling of wellness or calm or chill. It's not not that but it's far more than just being mellow in the midst of what 2020 has been for us. The sense of peace is integrally related to the work of Jesus Christ. It isn't just a feeling. Offering peace apart from actually doing something helpful for us, offering a feeling, a sense of peace in the middle of conflict is kind of a shallow thing, isn't it? It's not that helpful, because you're just going to go right back into it, into a world of conflict. We are offered peace, not just any peace. This is a peace that passes all understanding because of the work of Jesus Christ in reconciling the world to himself. Because of his work on the cross, you and I are able to have peace with God. Because of his work on the cross, you and I are also able to have peace with each other. And so when we feel that sense of mellowness, it's because God has been able to do that powerful work to actually resolve conflict, to reconcile people, to reconcile relationships. That's real peace. That isn't just a feeling that, that goes away when you get right back into the, uh, thrown right back into the fire. We can feel mellow and calm because we are at peace with God and with others. And this peace guards our hearts. I've got to be honest, I've never paid a lot of attention to that word in the verse. I've I've been so focused on the peace of God which passes all understanding in the past for all the years of my life that I haven't given a lot of thought to the verb that he uses in that sentence. The peace of God which passes all understanding, guard It guards our hearts and our minds. Our, our, uh, you know, and, and of course our hearts aren't, our, the, aren't the part that pumps blood. It's, it's, it's like the seat of like, the, the emotions, and it guards it. I don't think of my mind and my heart often as being in need of defense. But this word guard is like the walls of a castle, like a fortified city. And the peace of God actually guards us. When I think of a fortified city, I don't know why. For some reason, my brain goes to one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 18:19. A brother offended is harder to win than a fortified city. I guess that's just the first half of that verse. A brother offended is harder to win than a fortified city. The truth it is de- uh, it's conveying is that reconciliation is hard. That if I offend Ryan, winning him back is harder than overcoming a fortified city and so it's a it's a big caution to us to do all that we can to avoid offending a brother because reconciliation is difficult it's harder to win them back than to defeat and overthrow a walled city and so we ought to be wise and and live lives where we are quick to listen and slow to speak we ought to live lives where we outdo one another in showing honor where we go out of our way not to offend a brother. But if we do, in our sin, offend a brother, Jesus, in his work on the cross, he has given us the means to have real peace. Not just a feeling of mellow that goes away when we go right back into the conflict, but real peace. I realize I've only made it through the first four four verses of this fantastic passage, and that's okay. They deserved our detailed attention. It is tempting at our lowest point to take stock of our lives and to feel that in some way God has let us down. In fact, this is what I hear from many atheists. They're like, I don't believe in a God that lets blah, 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 blah. I don't feel, I I can't believe in a God. Oftentimes it's it's a personal thing. They've gone through something personally that they can't believe that a good and just God would allow that to happen. It's tempting for us, too, at our lowest point to feel that in some way God has let us down. But Paul reminds us here and elsewhere that if this is the case, if we, are, if we feel let down by God, then we have lost the plot. And Paul testifies this. Paul is able to sing praises to God in jail just hours after being beaten with rods. He's able to praise God because he knows that the good things that God has for us aren't limited to circumstances. He wrote in Romans that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit allowed Paul and allows us to be content in all circumstances Not to be content because of circumstances, but to be content in any circumstance. Friends, we can do all things through Christ.